In our scripture lesson in Philippians today, we hear Paul talking about moving on with God, about pressing on. Amazingly, I've discovered this word that he uses whenever he says, I press on, is a word that uh, the Greek word is dioko. And the word can mean to persecute or to pursue. And whenever Jesus confronts Saul on the road to Damascus, and he says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He uses the same word. And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. The same word means to pursue diligently, and it also means to persecute. Amazing. But uh, there is a connotation there, you see, of uh, relentlessly moving forward for what lies ahead. Be it diligently trying to overtake an enemy or be it trying to grasp something wonderful that lies ahead. And so this idea of moving on is uh, there. And in doing so, it pretty well captures what John Wesley pretty well encapsulated it in his phrase, moving on to perfection. And moving on to perfection doesn't mean moving on to a place to where we are perfect, where we never do anything wrong, or we never commit another sin, or never make another mistake. Instead, it's moving on to be perfect in our love of God and love of each other. And that's kind of what's uh, behind everything that Paul is saying here. He's basically telling us that he has experienced the grace of God. He was on the wrong path. He was diligently and unabashedly heading in the wrong direction, thinking that he was doing God a favor. And then he's confronted by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you see, it is God's grace as Paul was trying so hard to do the right thing and really doing the wrong thing. God in his grace just grabbed him by the scruff of his neck and shook him up quite a bit and put him diligently pursuing something even better. Enthusiasm can be heading in the wrong direction. Enthusiasm and uh, uh, sincerity can be wrong. You can be sincerely wrong and thinking that you're doing the right stuff. But when you do that, God in his grace will many times more than tap you on the shoulder. John Wesley gave us the concepts of different types of grace. It's all grace, just like ice cream may come in different flavors but it's all ice cream, isn't it? Be it vanilla, chocolate, raspberry, or whatever. It's all ice cream. But there are different labels that are put on different aspects of God's grace. 
And John Wesley, our founder, helped delineate these so well. The first is prevenient grace, where God pursues us, where he woos us and tries to get our attention. And when he is preparing us to even be able to receive the salvation that he has purchased for us. And when we finally do succumb to his prevenient grace, then we experience his justifying grace. Whenever we realize that we have been wrong in so many ways and we repent, he washes us and cleanses us and makes us whole and perfect in his sight through the precious blood of Jesus. But see, a lot of people want to stop there. And Paul is saying, that was just the beginning. You see, salvation is the whole trip. It's not just one thing here, one thing there. It's not just finally walking down to the altar and saying, I surrender my life to Jesus and then going back and living however you want to. That's not what it's about. The time when you come to the altar or the time whenever you get on your knees in a mop closet or whatever that time might be and wherever that place might be. With me, it was in my living room whenever I was tired of living and scared to die. With you, it may be somewhere else. But that time when you finally, some people call it surrender, what it is, you give yourself to God and he gives himself to you. This past weekend, I performed a marriage. Two people stood before me in Conroe, Texas, my first grandchild to get married. And Myla and Sam exchanged vows. They made a commitment to each other. And they committed themselves to each other for the rest of their lives. And they embarked and began at that point a very special adventure in love that begins with exploring each other and finding out what's important to each other. And then to the best of their ability, supplying each other with what that other person feels they need. And if both parties do that, parties are going to get what they need and they're going to know that the other person has their back. Well, justification, the point of salvation, is very, very similar. It's so similar that Paul uses marriage as an example of what our relationship with God through Jesus Christ is supposed to be like, a loving, exploring, giving of each other or to each other. And so we come... We commit to him. We give ourselves to him. He gives himself to us through the presence and power of his Holy Spirit. And that's not the end. That's the beginning of a relationship that should last through eternity. And so uh, we come to the altar. We come to that point, wherever it might be, where we make a commitment. And then we move on in a relationship 
And this is where what people don't realize is that that point of justification is just the beginning of the relationship. And from that point on, you move on in what you call sanctification, being made holy. And it doesn't mean becoming self-righteous or or priggish or anything like that. It's moving on in an adventure of love where you discover more and more what God has in store for you. And you love him more and more because of your realizing that he wants to help you have the best possible life that you can. And then you want to please him. And so the pressing on, Paul makes it sound like it's hard work. And I'm not saying it's easy, but labors of love aren't hard work. You do things you don't like joyfully to please a person when you love them. And so this is the way it is in our relationship with God. We move on in sanctifying grace. You've heard me say it before. You'll hear me say it again. You give as much of yourself to God as you understand. Okay, you're going to be learning more and more about him and you're going to discover more and more about yourself. And uh, you see, uh, there's the definitive sanctification where you are made holy and righteous in the eyes of God at the moment of salvation. And then there is what we call progressive sanctification, where we continually move on with him. See, when a person becomes a Christian, they usually undergo at the very beginning some radical life changes, especially if they had some sort of an immoral background. And through the first steps of spiritual growth and self-denial, they get rid of the large, obvious sins. But sad to say, many believers stop there and they don't go on to eliminate the little sins that clutter the landscape of their lives. Gordon MacDonald in his book, uh, Ordering Your Private World, told of an experience in his own life that uh, pretty well illustrates this. He says, some years ago, when Gail and I bought the old abandoned New Hampshire farm we now call Peace Lodge, we found the site where we wished to build our country home strewn with rocks and boulders. It was going to take a lot of hard work to clear it all out. The first phase of the clearing process was easy. The big boulders went fast, and when they were gone, we began to see that there were a lot of smaller rocks that had to go too. But when we had cleared the site of the boulders and the rocks, then we noticed all the stones and pebbles, things we hadn't seen before. This was much harder and more tedious work. But we stuck to it, and there came the day when the soil was ready for planting grass. That is pretty well a description of us moving on with the Lord, of our pressing on. And let's face it, sometimes whenever we uh, get down to just the pebbles, we may come across what we think is a pebble, and it won't move. And then we start digging around it and we discover there was a boulder buried there that we had never noticed. 
something major that we still need to give up to the Lord. But we continually move on with him. I love the way John Newton says it, you know, the one who wrote Amazing Grace. I am not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I thank God I am not what I once was. And I can say with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. We move on. We keep moving forward. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the Australian coat of arms has two creatures on it. The emu, a big flightless bird, and the kangaroo. And you might assume that those were just because they're so indigenous to Australia. But I discovered they share a characteristic that appealed to the Australian people. Both the emu and the kangaroo can only move forward. They cannot back up. I was never aware of that until this past week. The emu's three-toed foot causes it to fall if it tries to go backwards. And the kangaroo is prevented from moving in reverse by its big tail. And those who truly, to choo- who truly choose to follow Jesus Christ become, you see, like the emu and the ostrich. I mean, the emu and the kangaroo moving only forward, compelled by his love. How could we ever want to go backward? In fact, this is what Jesus calls us to when he says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. But it's not that there isn't some tension there. Uh, There's a young girl who had accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior who was wanting to uh, unite with a church. And an old deacon asked her, were you a sinner when you received the Lord Jesus into your life? And she replied, yes, sir. And the deacon said, well, are you a sinner now? Are you still a sinner? And she said, to tell you the truth, I feel I'm a greater sinner than ever. And then he said, then what real change have you experienced? And she said, I don't quite know how to explain it, except I used to be a sinner running after sin. But now that I'm saved, I am a sinner running from sin. Well, they received her into the fellowship of that church. And by her consistent life, she proved that she truly was converted. And this brings up what's really the importance of pressing on. It's not that you press on to be saved. It's not that you press on hoping that you'll be pleasing enough to the Lord to make it into the kingdom. Instead, the importance of pressing on is that it is evidence of your salvation to the world, to the Lord, and to yourself. Jesus told us that we'd be known by our fruit. Let me ask you, if you were arrested and put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? 
you know, I don't know if you, it's been a long time since I saw uh, a trapeze act, but they always fascinated me. And watching a trapeze show is just breathtaking, isn't it? To see that they're so talented, so strong, and we watch them high up in the air. Their dexterity, their timing has to be just right. And we suck in and gasp at uh, uh, near misses. And in most cases, there's a net underneath. And when they fall, we're just relieved when they just bounce and jump on the net. And sometimes they bounce right back up onto the trapeze again. Sometimes they have to climb up a ladder and start over. But the net is there. The whole world should be able to watch and say, uh, look at us when we're Christians, you know. They should see us and they should see us and say, look how they love one another. Look how well the husbands treat their wives and aren't they the best workers in the factories and offices and the best neighbors and the best students? Now this is to live on the trapeze being a show to the world. But what happens when we slip? The net is definitely there. The net is there. The blood of our Lord Jesus has provided forgiveness for all our trespasses. Both the net and the ability to stay on the trapeze are come from the grace and work of God in our lives. But, of course, we can't just bop around on the net, can we? We can't just lay around and take naps on the net, can we? If that's the case, if you saw somebody just laying around on the net, after a while, you would assume they weren't really a trapeze artist, would you? Well, there is a motivation for our pressing on. There is an evidence that comes from our pressing on. But what's the motivation? I've already talked about it. Someone confronted Martin Luther upon uh, uh, his uh, rediscovery of the biblical doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And he said, if this is true, a person could simply live as he pleased. And Martin Luther answered, indeed. Now, what pleases you? What pleases one who has been saved to the uttermost? What pleases one who realizes the great debt of love that was paid on our behalf? What brings pleasure to the heart of someone like that? Not sin, not sin. Instead, pleasing the object of our affection is what pleases us. I read yesterday about a husband and wife that really had a loveless marriage. It was sad. The man was very demanding, so much so that he prepared a list of rules and regulations for his wife to follow. And he insisted that she read them over every day and obey them to the letter. And among other things of his do's and don'ts, uh, were such details as what time she had to get up in the morning, when his breakfast should be served, and uh, how the housework should be done. 
And after several long years, this husband died. And as time passed, the woman fell in love with another man, uh, one who really deeply and dearly loved her. And soon they were married. And the husband did everything he could to make his new wife happy. He continually showered her with tokens of his appreciation. And then one day as she was cleaning house, she found tucked away in a drawer the list of commands that her first husband had drawn up for her. And as she looked over that list, it dawned on her that she was doing everything her first husband's list required anyway. She realized she was so devoted to this man that her deepest desire was to please him out of love, not obligation. We come to the Lord's table this day, remembering just how much he loves us. May we remember as we do so that if we love him, it'll show. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.